ladies and gentlemen, so a great pleasure to see uh, so many people interested in the uh, Etruscan and uh, early Italian world here this evening. This is the seventh uh, Sybil Haynes lecture, now an established part of our wider classics calendar and always a, a treat to look forward to in, uh, in Trinity term. It's in honour of a great scholar of Etruscan studies and a great benefactor of our faculty, Sybil Haynes, who's here uh, this evening. She's the author of fundamental works in, in the field, um, books like Etruscan Bronzes of 1985, Unsurpassed Since, and of it, uh, her great book on Etruscan civil Civilization, published in 2000 and uh, re-edited, reissued in 2005. Sybil is a, a truly international figure, English by marriage and home, Italian by expertise and scholarship, and German by origin. It's a constant delight that we have here in Oxford an established German archaeological apoikia. It brings a wealth of uh, precise knowledge and, uh, uh, to our uh, uh, classical archaeological proceedings. Sybil is the leading figure, the driver even, of this group, and a most loyal uh, seminar attender and, uh, and helper. The Haynes Post um, was something, the, the post in Etruscan and Italic archaeology, um, is something that Sybil dreamed of uh, back in, uh, in 2008, an inauspicious year, you might think, for an extraordinary initiative of that kind. Um, I worked with her to try and help um, uh, bring this about, and three things um, finally made it possible, the conjunction of three um, uh, distinct limbs. First of all, Somerville and the, uh, uh, and the Woolly Fund. Somerville is a, a great classical archaeological uh, uh, college, and it's a, um, a pleasure to see uh, the principal here this evening, Alice uh, Prochaska. The second limb was uh, the Normanby Trust in the person of Lord and Lady Normanby, who made a very uh, generous contribution. And the third, of course, was Sybil herself, both, uh, both as driver and major contributor. There were also other uh, private donors. The result has been a whole new post, the Sybil Haynes Lecturership in Etruscan and Italic Studies. Um, and the first holder, uh, Charlotte Potts, uh, started with us in uh, 2013. Um, I'd just like to express my uh, huge thanks on behalf of the Faculty, for this, of the faculty of Classics for this a great addition to our, uh, to our operation. Etruscan Studies and Pre-Roman Studies are now uh, thoroughly embedded uh, at the heart of what we do. Um, nowhere else uh, has such a post. Um, so, warm thanks to Somerville, to the Normanby Trust, uh, and to Sybil. This lecture used to be a way of raising awareness, a kind of um, fundraising lecture, if you like, for the, for the post, but that, that is now done, and now we have the lecture for itself. And it's a great pleasure to introduce our speaker for the seventh Haynes Lecture, um, Professor Jean Turfa, who is one of the foremost authorities on Etruscan culture and religion. Uh, she's taught in the UK and widely in the US, uh, notably at Bryn Mawr and uh, now at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. She's a highly regarded archaeo-thinker uh, and a member of the Elite Institute for Etruscan Studies in Italy, and recipient of a 
major fest rift in 2006. Um, you might perhaps have seen her most recently uh, as editor of a massive, this thick, <laughs> multi-authored companion to the Etruscan world of uh, 2013. Uh, anyone who's ever done any academic editing of any kind will know that a, a work of this kind represents a task of truly heroic proportions. Uh, Jean is also uh, an expert and has publications on a, on a wide range of things, Etruscan osteology and physical anthropology, anatomical votives, DNA analysis. She's got wide-ranging uh, subjects for her published articles, furniture, bucaro, mirrors, parasols, helmets, trade and carpentry, just to name a few. Uh, her articles from far away 1977 up till now, and a major new work in progress, I think, um, have focused on uh, Etruscan-Punic relations, uh, an axis many people here are uh, extremely interested in. She also has a special expertise in uh, uh, the Etruscan speciality of religion and ritual, uh, which culminated in a, in a splendid book uh, on, Etruscan, on the Etruscan brontoscopic calendar. It's how you tell the future from lightning. This is an extraordinary Etruscan text, translated into Latin by Nigidius Figulus, translated into Greek, by, by which we have it, uh, by uh, John Lydus. And now we have it in uh, Jean's superb user-friendly edition with commentary and, uh, uh, and interpretation. Uh, do have a look at it, it's an extraordinary thing. Uh, she's also, completely separately from that, a great expert in ships, shipping, and shipbuilding, uh, hence this evening's talk, which is on the pirates of Populonia, the myth of Etruscan piracy in the Mediterranean. Cheers. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I'm not supposed to say I'm also known as a crazy cat lady, and I'll have to say herding cats made it much easier for me to edit that big mega big Leon. Um, uh, <clears throat> when I first was a graduate student and went to the British Museum, I showed up on a Saturday and thought, well, I'm here early, I'll just add, and this wonderful white-haired gentleman came out and assisted me and pulled pottery that I needed to see from Punic sites, and it was Dennis Haynes, and he said, you know, I wish you could meet my wife, she's quite an Etruscan scholar and she volunteers all her time here. And now I, I have, and I'm good friends with Sybil, and, and I'm, I'm proud, we gain merit by being associated with her. Um, and thank you also uh, organizers, including uh, Charlotte, uh, friends, uh, new friends, uh, thanks for coming. Well, hmm. there we go. You, you wanted pirates, well, this is as close as you're going to get to pirates. Etruscans are often seen as the underdogs of written history. Too often, the get-bed press, beginning with Herodotus' tale of Lydian migration, and often continued in modern pronouncements on their DNA, the DNA of the cattle that were later named after them. Even though much of this has been debunked, for instance, by our friend Dominique Briquel on the origins of Etruscans and by others, Phil Perkins had a, a fine article on DNA. 
but in antiquity to call the Etruscans pirates was to link them to all that was reprehensible in human society, predation on the helpless and perpetuation of slavery. Some modern commentators have even suggested that discrepancies between male and female DNA patterns are due to Etruscans kidnapping all their wives from foreign lands. Uh, Etruscan women would have laughed at that. But such lively stories take on a life of their own. Uh, in uh, the website historyofpiratespodcast.com, they claim, we look at the island of Rhodes and the Tyrrhenian pirates that drive them up the wall. Their words, not mine. We look at the Etruscan pirates and the torture they used on many Greek captives. And that's Google as late as the 15th of April. The more grisly comments on Tyrrhenians are probably the least accurate. Cicero in a Hortensius fragment and Valerius Maximus say that Etruski would tie a living captive to a dead body and hurl him into the sea. The tale became a commonplace for ruthless cruelty. Virgil's Aeneid has the Etruscan king Byzantius commanding this sort of punishment. Well, there's no doubt that there were pirate raiders in the Mediterranean in antiquity, but were these pirates really Etruscans? If we are going to examine the literary accounts of piracy that have been associated with Etruscans, we need to evaluate them in the light of hard evidence derived from archaeological excavation, from epigraphy, the Etruscans' own rare words, and a dash of historical or ethnographic comparanda. We may well find that A, the evidence does not support the claims, but B, that the ancient authors initially, mostly, although they did describe pirates, may not have been naming Etruscans, but rather somebody else. I'll begin with some circumstantial evidence from the supposed heyday of Etruscan thalassocracy, which would be the 7th, 6th centuries BC, and then consider the society and economy of the Etruscan cities. Was this system and environment really conducive to piracy? An individual raider might profit at times and at great risk if he offends the princeps, the ruler of that area, but would whole cities have benefited? Probably not the city of Popolonia, um, as uh, I hope to uh, indicate to you. We can also examine the maritime landscape and shipbuilding and sailing practices in the first millennium BC Mediterranean. The winds and currents of the Mediterranean determined the routes possible for ancient sailing vessels, constraining both merchants and pirates alike. Also, thanks to recent breakthroughs in identifying Etruscan and Italic products, we are beginning to trace the movement and settlement of Etruscans across the Mediterranean, both to the east and the west, and a trail of artifacts and inscriptions shows that, for instance, women were involved in many places. How do families then fit in with the idea of piracy? In consideration of ships, I think, um, there's not a consensus on the nationality of the wrecks in, found in the central Mediterranean. Some people would think they were all Greek. 
which would actually be a compliment to the Etruscans, saying that, well, your ships never broke down and sank, but I, I think we'll, we'll have to view that a little differently. I think the design and technique of Etruscan shipbuilding has certain elements that betray the need to defend against attack at sea, rather than the offensive weapons that pirates would mount. In a moment, I'll explain this ship from an early Etruscan vase. And then after considering geographical, economic, and technological situations, we'll turn to the Greek and Latin literary picture and see what is really being said and what has been read between the lines. Run-ins there certainly were between navies, such as the battle over Alalia sometime around 535 BC and the battle of Cumae in 474. Greeks were in hostile contact with Etruscans, but which group in the historical accounts actually were the pirates and which were the victims? Finally, I'll show you uh, the results of my survey of the physical, actually forensic evidence of shipwrecks and the remains of cargoes and people in them. Uh, and we can consider if that furnishes any evidence of pirate attack. We even have additional collateral authorities. For instance, the accounts of the Cavaliers and even some food for thought from Gilbert and Sullivan. We love them. Uh, I will only be able to end with a question. I can't prove all of this, uh, but I hope to make you question the evidence whether it is solely literary or not, and to muse a bit on the character of seafaring and society in the central Mediterranean before the era of Pompey and Caesar changed that picture all over again. First, circumstances, Etruscan society and economy. What are the basics of pirate success? Uh, there's a fun book, uh, published in 1953 by Cyrus Car Caracker, Piracy Was a Business. And he's really referring to uh, 15th and, or 16th and 17th century Caribbean and African pirates, but we still have something to learn from that, um, as did N.C. Wyeth, apparently. Uh, pirates need sufficient supply of plunder they have to camp out on major, well-frequented trade routes. They need to overtake a vessel at sea. And to do that, you have to be really fast and spot that vessel terribly early, or you will never make the connection. Uh, you have to use, essentially, a warship, not a tubby merchant ship. Uh, think about what other people have that pirates want. And of the stuff that is desirable, how much of it can be moved and sold easily. So in the 17th century, bolts of calico and silk, alcohol in bottles, were useful for the markets these folks uh, hit in Africa and the New World when the trading could be done far from home. But what if it was in Mare Nostrum, if it was all their own sea, and they ran a risk of being identified. Um, pirates' markets uh, included, for these folks, colonial New England, the, or the slave markets of Roman-dominated Delos. They're kind of specialized, and there are many cargoes that are completely rejected. 
and they need safe settlements like the Cilician pirates of the late Republican era. Freebooters, secret societies, tend to thrive, especially in times of unrest. The disruption of the Persian Wars led to the tyranny of Histiaos in Miletus. The Kyrenia ship that I'll show you a little bit later, uh, sunk off Cyprus, has been proposed as the victim of a piracy that followed an era of piracy following the aftermath of the death of Alexander and the wars of his would-be successors. And then again, Rome's civil wars led to a more unrest and that translated into piracy on the seas. In the last two centuries of the first millennium BC, more wrecks were identified for that than in any other eras. Uh, first Rhodes and then Rome had to take over policing the Mediterranean. Um, but that piracy is too late to blame on Etruscans. By the second and first centuries BC, they no longer have uh, political autonomy, uh, but somebody else has taken over. Uh, Blackbeard. Uh, Carriker described the Red Sea Men, pirate colonists on St. Mary's Island, east of Madagascar. Their population was about 1,500 at the end of the 17th century. The majority of them were English, uh, folks who had fled their homeland for political or social reasons. When not on the high seas, they lived like hardworking colonists, tilling soil, herding cattle. They had to feed themselves even when they didn't have uh, prey to connect with. The factors of major merchants of industries in the civilized world, Europe and America, came to deal with them. American merchants arrived to supply them with clothing, weapons, food, alcohol, and tobacco in exchange for their plunder. Note that you need a good safe location and an operating system. You must be guaranteed the necessities of life and that you can get a good price for your loot. They had to flee uh, these Red Sea men uh, due to a native insurrection. They were slavers and it caught up with them. They moved to New York, in fact. Many still to be found on Wall Street, I assume. <laughs> Uh, William Penn, the founder of my state of Pennsylvania and the son of the great Admiral Penn, in 1699 wrote a treatise, The Pedigree of Piracy. He sarcastically told the British authorities that governmental encouragement of privateering and an economic system that rewarded smugglers and the looting of settlements was really at the heart of the rampant piracy in colonial waters. And that has a little something to tell us for piracy in antiquity. There's one other thing, which is why I put Teach up. Notice his beard. Uh, one other variable was not present in antiquity that altered the picture for pirates, gunpowder. Teach braids lit fuses into his beard to show how tough he is. <laughs> well, there are types of piracy then. Some is politically motivated. It's backed by the government or carried on by an exiled faction of the former government. Things like letters of mark and reprisal, the Elizabethan sea dogs set loose uh, on enemy shipping. And one interesting example of that, 
An honest example, if you will, is Prince Rupert, uh, one of the, among the Cavaliers. Rupert of the Rhine was the son of Frederick V, the Palatine Elector, and Elizabeth, the sister of Charles I. When things went badly for those folks, the displaced aristocrats uh, left and fled to the Caribbean. They had the ships that they had traveled in, and they had been trained at arms their whole lives. They were officers and such, uh, and they had all the skills ready then. Um, Rupert, I couldn't resist putting, uh, while he was held captive for a while, he got a puppy and trained him to do tricks, and it was the dog boy who went into battle with him. Sadly, uh, at uh, Marston Moor in 1644, uh, they went after Boy instead of Rupert and got him. Uh, yeah, I've got it in for them. Um, like other cavaliers, Rupert transferred to Barbados and preyed on roundhead and allied shipping with the vessels that he had retrieved from the original conflict. He also carried on scientific experiments. He's responsible for Rupert's drops. It's a type of glass studies, uh, studies of gunmetal and mesotints. Um, that's a royal education. He made that, that and many more mesotints as well. He was a founder of the Royal Society, the first Lord of the Admiralty in 70, 1673, and under Charles II, the first governor of the Hudson's Bay Colony. Um, but there was that period when we saw sort of, they, today we might say freedom fighters, we saw resistance and it was piracy. Uh, there's a possible indication of piracy on an attic uh, black figure uh, cup. And I think you can see, here's the innocent merchant ship. It's a deep hold ship. It's built as a sailing ship. You can see that it had a deep keel and a huge sail. Uh, it's going to be helpless if this other ship gets too close because it's a warship. It's propelled by rowers and it has a waterline ram and uh, easy prey. Uh, many folks think this is a scene of piracy, but I would remind you it's painted by Athenians and both ships and ship types uh, are Greek. The prototype for an ideological pirate, or he'd like you to have believed so, was Dionysius the Phocian. Uh, he had fought against the Persian takeover of the Greek uh, cities in Asia Minor. When that failed, he fled to Italy and Sicily. And it was said that uh, while based there in Italy, he only preyed on non-Greeks. That would be Etruscans and Carthaginians. Uh, so he had an ethnic bias. It wasn't city by city or kingdom by kingdom. Uh, it was Greeks versus everybody else. And that's Herodotus VI. Uh, that was 494 BC. When he saw, says Herodotus, that the Ionian cause was lost, he sailed away with three enemy ships he had taken. He went to Phoenicia and sank several merchantmen, plundered the coast, and then sailed to Sicily, where he set up as a pirate, robbing Carcadonians and Tyrrhenians, but no Greeks. An early recognition of ethnic differences, I fear. Uh, can't resist, huh? Um, some were seeking, uh, some pirates were seeking egalitarian society or seeking rules that could protect common people. Uh, 
Piracy in the Caribbean was a time of displaced, disenfranchised people. Uh, there's even some indication of abused or poor people turning to buccaneering, which is uh, eating, uh, catching and uh, uh, drying turtle meat, uh, and setting up carefully policed kingdoms with laws and fair play. And that's what uh, the highly idealized Captain Blood story would give us. Um, so there were others, nobles like Dionysius the Phocian or Rupert of the Rhine, uh, displaced but already trained at arms and already with ships at their disposal. One other example of that uh, is the Corinthian Demaratus, who as a Bacchiad family member about 650 BC, went into exile after a coup in his native Corinth. Uh, there's a Pentaconter model, a modern model, uh, to give you a hint of what sort of uh, naval vessels uh, or colony vessels were available at the time. Demaratus moved to Tarquinia, where the family had strong ties. I would suggest through Levantine associations and the Marseillac. Uh, it's a type of uh, businessmen's club, but it's much deeper than that. Uh, connecting the Levant uh, and people in the central Mediterranean. Uh, I'm going to say a couple words about that tomorrow in the Ancient History Seminar in London. Um, Demaratus married well, and his son, Lucumo, not his real name, became Lucius Tarquinius, the warlord king of Rome. Uh, but Demaratus had more than the ships he fled in, which would have functioned as warships. He had all the rowers of those ships. And when they put down their oars and step onto dry land, they're suddenly they pick up a sword and they're a raider. Um, he also had other passengers, his retainers. Pliny says the entourage included artisans who brought new technology and styles, such as terracotta working, to Etruria. And overnight, Etruria is roofed with roof tiles. Uh, ahead of Greece, where in Corinth, where they're invented, uh, they're used, they're so difficult to handle and time-consuming, they're used just for temples. There's no mention of Demaratus bringing warriors, but many another noble exile probably did. And we know of some who set up camp among the Greek colonies of Sicily and Magna Graecia. Later on in the 6th century, the time of the uh, Persian conquest and the Ionian revolt, events leading up to it inspired even more malcontents to leave. And if they have a ship to flee in, it's a Pentaconter and it's a warship. Uh, compare Etruria. The only Etruscan city on the sea is Popolonia. None of the others are down on the beach like that. Um, this is a, an artist's uh, conception of Popolonia in uh, post-6th century BC probably because the original noble tombs are already kind of falling into disrepair, iron smelting, and here's a little bay down here. It's pretty close to the sea and therefore pretty vulnerable, and nobody else took that chance it seems. Populonia's wealth derives not from easily handled goods like calico, gold, rum, but from iron ore. Not a very good cargo to rustle. And we know from the Ischia excavations, Pithecusae, they were carting hematite uh, from places like Elba all the way down. They weren't smelting it in place and carrying bars. 
they were carrying ore uh, quite long distances. But how do you steal a bunch of ore and explain to the prince where you're going to sell it uh, that, oh, I came by it lawfully? Um, uh, it's things that are in large containers that have to be decanted or in amphorae that are heavy and too easily identified. Uh, they're, they're not removed from wrecks, uh, even those that have been assumed to be attacked by pirates. An example of that is the Madrag du Gien ship. Here it is being emptied by archaeologists, but you can see uh, five to six uh, layers of amphorae and uh, nobody even comes back to salvage them. That This isn't the cargoes that are worth that kind of effort. Um, Popolonia. Uh, as early as the Villanovan period, they built and maintained hefty fortification walls. Uh, and you can see some of that here in Falda della Guardiola. Under it was a, a pretty cool foundation deposit with a Sardinian ship model even. Um, uh, but the source of wealth being metals is just not conducive uh, to uh, ready plunder. The other cities have different kinds of products and maybe more to worry about. The rulers of Popolonia, buried in tumuli near the seashore, did acquire rich goods from Greece and the Near East, but those goods look very like diplomatic gifts given in hopes of access for the foreigners to obtain Etruscan metal and other natural resources things that you really cannot plunder easily. The ships uh, have rather shallow, simple anchorages and other artist reconstruction. Where would the pirates' loot have gone if Popolonia, for instance, or its ruler or its aristocrats, the only people who could afford the time away from farming or ironworking to be raiders, where is the loot that they would have obtained? Um, we do see princely grave goods, uh, many of them from women's graves, in fact. Um, but there are types of symbolic objects like furniture, vehicles, ivory uh, uh, tusks or uh, decorations, the types of things carried by Near Eastern diplomats on behalf of their rulers. And I think Assyrians wanting to, to fund their war machine are desperate for iron and they're likely to be in, in the mix. Uh, but that's all diplomatic level. That's all properly obtained. Uh, where is the plunder? Well, to whom could a pirate sell an ivory throne? Um, nobody could afford it. Uh, and if you go to sell it to the ruler, he's going to wonder, he's going to, well, I think that belongs to, to my brother ruler down the line. Um, it, it's, it's not really on. We see a great variation in types of goods. Um, there's some of the goods. Uh, vehicles, uh, metal uh, vessels, uh, like that belonging to Larthia, wife of Velthor, uh, now proven, I think, to be a, a female owner in the Regolini Galassi tomb. Uh, ivories. No normal person, it's not like buying a bottle of bootleg rum or smuggled cigarettes. Uh, only people of the ruling class are, you know, apt for this. 
and we see the exact same uh, mixture of objects, symbolic and royal uh, level, in both their design and their materials, all across the Mediterranean. Uh, for instance, at places like Salamis in Cyprus, you can see the furniture and there were vehicles and, uh, under there. Um, and even as far as Triomar and Atlantic Spain and uh, Iberia, uh, Spain and Portugal, uh, the same kinds of gold jewels, uh, fancy furniture, uh, luxury goods in other words, uh, things only appropriate to uh, royal or uh, high aristocratic uh, tombs. They're too valuable uh, to go to anybody but the most elite. And in fact, it's also becoming evident that Etruscans interacted as people with these other cultures, these diplomats who came. The princely ornaments such as the gold pectoral in the Regolini Galassi tomb have been shown by Maurizio Sanibale uh, in the Vatican collection uh, to reflect their understanding of Egyptian belief, their ideological system. When the Pharaoh dies and becomes the Osiris, his bones are silver and his flesh is gold. And this is not a, a common kind of Etruscan ornament. Only a very few people are buried with something like that pectoral, like certain other persons were buried with it uh, long, long before. Uh, and it's likely that they understand what, it's not just, oh, look at the funny thing, I'm going to duplicate it and wear it in my grave. Um, it's an indication that uh, we, we understand, and our ruler is like the pharaoh or the great king and must drive in a chariot and have a parasol and so forth. Etruscans did travel widely, even in the Villanovan period. Uh, that's a 9th century BC uh, longship model. We assume that the grave in which it was found holds the owner of the real ship, and you bury a little model. Very interesting because some of those ship owners are women buried at Tarquinia. Uh, that's a, a, a ninth century fisherman's boat. It had a mast in it originally. It was a seagoing sailing vessel. Uh, it had the fishermen buried in it in a fisherman's sweater, essentially. Um, uh, but uh, the people traveling in these ships are families, uh, to some extent at least. And I suggest that by an analysis of the objects uh, that are circulating around the Mediterranean. Um, these are some of the places, and you can see it's, it's all the, from east to west in the Mediterranean. Uh, the farthest west is Huelva where there's an 8th century settlement with Villanovan ceramics found there, also neuragic Sardinian pottery, everyday wear, cook pots, and that's not the sort of thing that goes as a diplomatic gift or even a trade good, it's cuisine, uh, and you travel with your own cuisine, essentially. It must indicate the presence of families or long-term settlements, trading posts at the very least, uh, in these areas. And that's uh, by the 6th century, uh, the orientalizing art styles of uh, Huelva 
look a lot like those of Etruria or many other places. It's that kind of orientalizing koine. Uh, there are votive gifts in international sanctuaries in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, from the 9th century uh, through the 6th century and beyond. Sybil Haynes's identification of a fine 5th century Etruscan incense burner in Olympia uh, should be a reminder to us that the practice continued and it's on our ability to recognize what is Etruscan and what isn't, uh, whether we give them credit for uh, moving around and participating in the international cults. Things like um, shields, crested helmets, horse bits uh, that are highly decorative, uh, circulated to places like the Samian Heraion, Olympia, uh, Delphi, even Dodona. Um, some of the most distinctive Etruscan items might be trophies taken by Greeks and proudly brought back home, uh, but I'm betting that some of them are on the other side. They are uh, offerings brought to these places and uh, donated by Etruscans. And um, there's some more of the, that's uh, just an example to show you what a complete one of these helmets look like. They're tiny fragments and you may understand why it took a while for people to identify them. Um, that's a map of the distribution of fibulae uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, those dots. And there's some of the fibulae. And the trick here is, uh, there's a lot of women making dedications. It's not taking a safety pin and tossing it into a votive pit. Uh, it's taking a garment, a national costume, something really special that the woman has made and offering that along with all of its fasteners, uh, I think in many cases. And we can see among the fibulae, this is a type generally used for male clothing this type belongs with female clothing. Uh, that's not 100%, but it's pretty frequent. Uh, and I, I don't think these are all slave women who are robbed of their clothing. Uh, I think there's a high percentage of Villanovan era Etruscan women uh, who are traveling or at least sending objects about. Um, that's not exactly Anne Bonny and pirate chicks uh, making stop-offs. Uh, that's, again, on a pretty high level. Uh, this is a, about 600 BC. Um, Ras al-Basit is a, a headland on the coast of Syria where there is a, a native settlement, uh, and you can see the bichrome vases. Uh, in the uh, necropolis there, uh, most of the burials are pretty clearly identical local. They have the same types of native vases and, and such. But one grave had two uh, Etruscan bucurocantheroi, the kind of things that you hold and pledge, and the second handle allows you to hand it to the other person and pass it around uh, in some sort of ceremony. The body buried in the grave is an infant. What could be a reason for an infant who's had no opportunity to do anything or even demonstrate ethnicity to have the only person in that graveyard to have uh, Etruscan vases. And I, I, I can never prove any of this, but for fun, I'll suggest you, 
you know, it's a small child. What if it was born while the parents are en route and it didn't survive? Or these are people of Etruscan background living in this uh, site, which is well-placed for trade. Um, other places have uh, Etruscan women as well. That's the site of Latte, uh, Latara, uh, which uh, had an Etruscan-inspired wine industry. And their amphorae are uh, copies of Etruscan-designed uh, amphorae. Uh, and their um, uh, 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 winemaking equipment seems to show an Etruscan uh, flavor. Uh, on some of the vases are graffiti. I don't have an image of the actual signatures, but some vases are marked with Etruscan women's names. So we see some kind of a, a settlement, a formal um, settlement abroad in Gaul uh, of Etruscans. And I can't resist showing our, our this is our friend uh, Jean Grand Eimerich uh, visiting the just opened uh, grave at Lavaux near Troyes um, of uh, a princely burial. And it's an Etruscan style uh, bronze cauldron. Um, uh, I look for a lot more to come from these areas. The notion of the Etruscans settled far from home includes the tombs on the Birsa, the Acropolis of Carthage, in which uh, there are some finds of Bucro pottery and Etrusco-Corinthian pottery. And to be buried on the Birsa, you've got to be somehow aristocratic. Um, uh, not all of these people are necessarily Etruscan, but there's some strong component there as well, uh, including uh, a tessera hospitalis, a sort of visiting card, an identification card in ivory. Um, uh, there's uh, the one, and it's inscribed, I belong to Puina at Carthage, or of Carthage. Um, uh, showing they're ingrained in a lot of uh, networks of uh, trade. And I'll talk a bit more on that tomorrow. Um, we have another category of evidence, the ships themselves. Uh, we have images, at least, of these ships. This one is a, uh, in the Louvre. It's a Chiretan white on red pyxis, specifically for burial. Um, and it has a battle, it seems, between a warship with a waterline ram and rowers and some kind of a galley. You can see it's a deep ship with a sort of beak out the front and uh, a sort of spear uh, mounted on the front of it. A close look at the painting, and it's been studied under ultraviolet and they've confirmed uh, that this uh, is uh, genuine. Uh, there's two um, sails on that ship. One sail here and one here. And that's the first oldest example of a foresail on a Mediterranean vessel. The next one was a fragment of an attic uh, crater, I think, found in Corinth. But it's a hundred years later than this. It's a little warship. Um, the, I say it's a foresail because where the arrow is, you can see a sharpshooter with a bow. And they're trying to defend against the other ship, which has the waterline ram. Um, so that's our first example of the foresail. I can't resist pointing out to you, there's a fifth century Etruscan tomb 
with a huge merchant vessel with a foresail. And where it leads to is the foresail on Roman ships. Um, that would be the bread and circuses run. It's an odd kind of thing. It's only useful for certain very specific maneuvers. Uh, but anyhow, um, I think the ship with the foresail is the innocent Etruscan merchant man, and it's trying to defend against a Greek-style vessel with a waterline ram. And there's the other one, the Aristonothos, uh, his joke, uh, Crater, um, which shows uh, a Greek-style warship, waterline ram, uh, men with very similar shield devices uh, ranged against an Etruscan ship with a very deep hull and this funny uh, beak on the front of it. What good is that beak for? If you're being attacked by somebody with a waterline ram, he's going to fall afoul of your beak and your soldiers before he makes contact with your hull. Um, it may be a defensive uh, invention. Uh, we don't have any sunken ships that retain uh, this configuration, uh, but I think there's something uh, in it there. Uh, when in the 19th century they made the first ironclad warships, uh, they were worried about being attacked with somebody with an ironclad prow, and they made these big uh, humps on the top of the prow of a ship to try to defend against uh, that sort of attack. Uh, and there's a suggestion of what those two kinds of ships would be like. Uh, I think that this uh, deep hull ship probably is inspired uh, by Cypriot ships um, that would have been calling quite frequently in Etruria. We have two actual wrecks that many of us, although not everyone, um, uh, believe their nationality, uh, their registry, if you will, uh, was Etruscan. Uh, and one is uh, wrecked uh, in Campese Bay off Isla del Giglio. I think folks at Oxford probably know more about it than many of the rest of us uh, since it was uh, partially brought up by uh, Menson Bound and um, brought here. We'd love to see more about that. Um, on the Giglio shipwreck, uh, were found a helmet, which presumably speaks to a defender who was on board. Um, and uh, various trade vases, there's vases of several different nationalities, including uh, Corinthian and other Greek, um, and some oddities, uh, like on a much earlier wreck, a writing tablet, uh, that is a piece of furniture. It's a banquet couch. Who is carrying a banquet couch around? It must be some kind of important uh, delivery. Uh, and they also found uh, ar a set, uh, sets of arrowheads on the ship. Um, but it's, it sank in bad weather. Nobody's saying it was sunk by pirates. Um, was it the ship of a pirate? Not likely. It's uh, got a deep hull. It's a, a small merchant vessel. There's another uh, vessel that I think is Etruscan, and it was sunk off the Bouche du Rhone, uh, also in bad conditions, bad weather and such. There's one thing that I'd have to admit about it. You can see that the way it was put together 
uh, is by ligatures. It's called a sewn ship. They, that you take rope and bore holes and kind of stitch it together, uh, as well as use other types of fasteners. Uh, that is used today in the Red Sea Indian Ocean, where people are likely to hit a coral reef or something and have to make repairs on the fly. So an Etruscan merchant man is out and needs some kind of repair. He can repair that ship pretty straightforwardly. He's going to want to do more when he gets back home. Somebody in a Greek-style ship where the planks are joined edge on and held together with mortise and tenon like fine furniture, if they are stove apart, if they're showing daylight, you have to drag that ship back to a dry dock, take it all apart, and reassemble it to make everything fit. So if I were a pirate, I guess I'd like the idea of repairs on the fly. But the ships that we know of with this, prob with this uh, design uh, are certainly not pirates, nor are they attacked by pirates. These are things from the Etruscan um, shipping lanes. One other thing that I'd suggest uh, speaks against this guy was not an Etruscan pirate. He couldn't get it together, I suppose. It's the Peshmaho uh, tablet. One side was reused with a Greek uh, contract on the original side. It says that two guys, uh, Venel and Utavu, at Matalia, which is Marseille, signed a contract to rent a boat and they promised to bring it back. You don't go pirating in rental boats. Um, uh, so what little evidence we have speaks to small entrepreneurs uh, trying to get along. Um, if there are weapons, it's a small amount of arrows or a helmet. If you hire a guard for your ship, he's going to have a helmet. And if he jumps ship along with you in a storm, the first thing he throws away is his helmet right? Uh, as you will see from someone who didn't. Um, literary sources. Uh, the first literary references to Tyrrhenian piracy come from the time of Greek colonization in the central Mediterranean. That would be the 8th century BC, when the first wave of Greek and Levantine colonists in Italian waters all lived amicably, intermarrying and such with, with all sorts of other ethnic groups. That's like the site at Pithecusae uh, in the Bay of Naples. Um, it's more on the order of a Phoenician commercial colony. But then the good land started to run out and things got different. Uh, some scholars have jokingly said, well, then the grandparents of these hybrid children say, you know, if you move to the mainland, Kumi in Campania, you could have a pony. We've got room in the fields and, and everybody, well, that, that's a, a little bit of a joke, but uh, the land hunger, um, there were probably a lot of dissidents uh, traveled abroad and colonized. Uh, it wasn't a land problem in the first generation, but the next generations, uh, the good stuff, there's still crummy land, but what they really want is starting to dry up. And then the next waves of uh, Greek immigrants would not be so beneficial. Uh, for instance, in the Metaponto region, uh, they burned out native villages and presumably enslaved some groups. Uh, things start to get tight and people start to grow violent. In fact, the violence of Greek colonials is noted by the historians 
even for as early as the 8th century BC, in Thucydides' accounts of Archias of Corinth driving out uh, sickle natives from the region of Syracuse, and Chalcidians dispossessing natives at Leontinoi and Catane. Uh, and the histories do detail many cases of aggression between colonials as well as against natives. Uh, the earliest citations of pirates in the Tyrrhenian literature are in Hesiod and the Homeric Hymn to Dionysus. Uh, Hesiod says that the sons of Circe and Odysseus, Agrios and Latinos, ruled over the famous Tyrrhenians very far off in a recess of the Holy Islands. The name of the people is Tyrsenoi, later Tyrrhenoi, Tyrrhenians, Tyrrhenians. Um, it's not a regular Greek word, and it's certainly not an Etruscan or Italic term either. The Homeric hymn to Dionysus has uh, Tyrsenian pirates attempting to kidnap the young god Dionysus. Um, and it says they thought he was just a rich guy, and they would kidnap him and hold him uh, to ransom. Uh, but, of course, he turns the tables on them uh, and turns them all ultimately into dolphins. The Homeric hymn was probably recorded in the 6th century BC rather than the 8th century. But the 6th was a time of rivalry and occasional hostilities between Greeks, Etruscans, and Carthaginians using the roots, the same roots, in the central Mediterranean. Uh, and in that story, uh, the sailors who tried to perpetrate that were changed into dolphins. Um, it's reprised uh, in the uh, Metamorphoses of Ovid, uh, so Augustan era, and in Hyginus Fabulae. Um, and many people think that it's illustrated by the uh, Exequius cup. Um, who sails along uh, now that he's rid of all of the, the sailors. He never needed them in the first place. Um, uh, most books list that as Toledo Museum, but in two, 2013 it was repatriated to Italy. Um, note that the ship of Dionysus is a warship with a waterline ram. Um, and there's the ship that is suggested as uh, portraying this story. Uh, that wouldn't be Dionysus, but a old, the old man of the sea or some sort of sea person. And here's men diving into the water and turning into uh, dolphins. Uh, the term that is used in the Homeric hymn is leistoi, which is the word for thieves for marauders or raiders, whether they are on land or on sea. Um, uh, but why would Etruscans have made, I neglected to mention, uh, but you could see it there, that uh, it's a painter close to the Mikali painter, the famous Etruscan black figure painter, um, uh, it's made by an Etruscan in Etruria, and it was buried in Etruria, and they obviously liked it. It has that kind of Etruscan humor about these uh, dolphins jumping. Um, why would Etruscans choose to 
make and obtain vases that pillory them as bad guys, or at least stupid guys. Um, uh, it goes even against what the, uh, the enemies of the Etruscans said of them. Um, they're supposed to be so religious. That's the one thing they grant them. Uh, you know, they lost to us, they're mean guys and all, but uh, yes, they know they're more dedicated to religion than anybody else. They gave the Romans all their ritual behavior and their scriptures and so forth. So why did they pick that? In other words, what's in a name? Uh, and in fact, the names of these folks are none of them anything like Etruscan. Aethelides, Medon, Lycabas, Opheltes, and Acoetes is the pilot. He spoke up and tried to say, eh, you know, we shouldn't do this, so uh, Dionysus let him live. Um, but why would Etruscans purvey images that pillory themselves? It's nothing to really be proud of. Um, well, pirates as art patrons, probably not. Historic animosities, certainly. Uh, the time of the Homeric hymn, if it's the sixth century, coincides with some events in the central Mediterranean that have little to do with the god of wine, um, but much to do with seafaring. The Battle of Alalia. It's the battle over Alalia, really. We don't know where it was fought. They don't say specifically that it was fought uh, off the shore of Corsica, uh, but it was somewhere in the Sardinian Sea. And you see there uh, Corsica. Um, in that battle, um, uh, there were settlers in Corsica who were Greek. Um, it was a group of Phocians who had been displaced from their homeland in Asia Minor by the Persian conquest in Ionia. Corsica was not previously colonized by Greeks, but was seen as a land of opportunity. But around 540-535 BC, a second wave of colonists showed up. Uh, these were uh, disenfranchised freedom fighters who had to flee the Persians, and they included a lot of the relatives of the original set of colonists. But when they arrived, they're told, well, you know, we're glad you're safe and alive, but you're not getting my land. Uh, they told them, you know, you can move on. You're, not, you're going to be second-class citizens, in other words, if you don't find your own way. And so those people have the training from fighting the Persians and have the ships they came in, so they set up as pirates. Oh, we don't need any land. We're just going to go out and help ourselves. Who are they preying on in the Sardinian Sea? Uh, here's Popolonia and Pisa and all those rich Etruscan cities and their shore ports, uh, and that's who the pirates of Alalia are going after. Uh, ultimately, it was so bad, the Etruscans and Carthaginians uh, invoked a treaty they had uh, to defend against this. Each side, Etru Etruscan cities, um, only one is named, Trevetri, Cairo. We know there were others, but we weren't given the names. The Carthaginians, the city of the empire of Carthage, um, join forces, each with 60 warships, and go against 60 
warships of the uh, Phocian Greeks uh, off Alalia. Uh, it's a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, the Phocians had uh, some kind of um, beta version warship ram, and when they would ram somebody, it would rip their own ship apart. So they did a lot of damage, but they had to limp off home. And they eventually limped to Marseille and to Velia, Elia, in South Italy, and founded uh, or set up uh, uh, colonies there uh, to uh, stay. Um, there's a, another part of the story uh, that goes to the aftermath of that. Um, the prisoners that were taken by the city of Cairo were landed on the seashore and stoned to death uh, by the citizens, probably the widows and orphans of seafarers who had been killed by these pirates. Um, the bodies were left to rot, and at a certain point, anyone who walked past there was stricken with paralysis and died, whether they were humans or animals. So it's not merely a, a guilt trip kind of thing. Uh, and um, uh, Professor Harrison, who's in the audience, and I uh, have worked up an article. Um, it was airborne botulism, which is what modern terrorists have been trying to uh, perfect. But thank goodness there's never been, a, it's, it was very, very rare conditions that presumably supported this. Uh, I couldn't resist, it's Asterix, uh, but it's Alalia uh, in its heyday. Um, then came the Battle of Kumi, uh, 474, uh, and those are, and so the one that we've seen in the British Museum, um, those are uh, helmets taken from Etruscan marines at that battle off the uh, Bay of Naples. Uh, that would be the beginning of the end. Um, uh, the Syracusans will not tolerate Etruscans uh, on the sea. Uh, and they align with uh, Romans and uh, come after them. Well, the question is, all of these uh, pirates are called Tyrrhenians or Tyrsenians, but that name is made up. It's probably a pejorative term. It's an ethnic slur if we only understood all the background of it. Um, an Etruscan would have called himself by his hometown. He would probably not say, I'm Etruscan. He'd say, I'm Kyretan or Tarquinian or Vulcan. Um, but here's a, in a Tarquinian tomb, uh, we see the word that they called themselves when they needed that blanket term. Uh, this man, an ancestor, Zealot Amke Mekel Rosnal, he was a praetor of the Etruscan people. And they call themselves Rosna or Rasena totally different from any of these other terms. Uh, even Lionel Casson, uh, among others, maintained that Tyrrhenians was a catch-all for any sort of seafaring raider in the central Mediterranean or the Tyrrhenian Sea, whether Sardinian, Etruscan, Italic, or even Greek-speaking, like the South Italian colonists. It's like the Romans choosing to call northern tribesmen Scoti, bandits or consider the tenuous ethnic links in modern slang, French fries, Dutch courage, Russian roulette. Um, who would know about pirates? Uh, the Greek sources, certainly. Um, uh, Thucydides said that Greeks from Kumi uh, founded the Sicilian colony of Zancle 
um, on the uh, Straits of Messina specifically to practice piracy. In uh, 580 BC, uh, displaced Rhodians and Canadians led by Pentathlos, an adventurer, failed to take over western Sicily, so they occupied the Lipari Islands and turned pirate. Uh, after wiping out the native population on the island, they sent dedications to the sanctuary of Paolo at Delphi. Uh, the ancient authors refer to the Liparians' pirate ships as neas, which is the word for long ships, not ploia, which would be round ships or merchantmen. Uh, there's others like Dionysius the Phocian uh, and still others. Uh, the uh, Syracusans under Admiral Phaeulus uh, raided Elba, um, but were bought off by the Etruscans and returned to Syracuse. Uh, the successor to the Syracusan uh, admiral, Apelles, raided Corsica with 60 triremes. 60 seems to be a magic number. Um, uh, that is, dedicated warships. That's the only thing you're going to do with triremes is raid and, and loot. Um, and took captives. Those victims would have been Etruscan citizens and their allies. And then, uh, where Gilbert and Sullivan may be suggested, uh, if the pirate king uh, would not play a sanctimonious part with a pirate head and a pirate heart, he would be Dionysius I of Syracuse, uh, the king of Syracuse, who at the beginning of the fourth century uh, claimed he would rid the Mediterranean of pirates by staging a pirate raid on Etruria. Um, don't try to logic that out. Uh, and one of the places that he attacked was Pyrgi. Um, you see here the beachside sanctuary of a fertility goddess, um, Uni, Astarte, Leucothea, uh, according to what you call her. And here you see uh, from Temple A, uh, part of the decoration of it in the style of about 460 BC. Uh, some of these things were uh, badly damaged and the repairs that were made after 383 BC, after the pirate attack, uh, show the uh, later style. It's very clear cut. Uh, these places, and they were sanctuaries of goddesses that were worshipped by the Greeks themselves, uh, yet the Syracusans are, are raiding and pillaging them. Uh, Demetrius Polyarchites, at the end of the fourth century, captured Tyrrhenian pirates. They turned out to be natives of Antium, Anzio, on the coast south of Rome, Italic in ethnicity and not Etruscan at all. In 295 BC, Agathocles, uh, coin of his there, uh, he's sunk a few more ships, it's true. In 295 BC, uh, provided raiding ships for displaced Italic tribesmen like the Apigians. He signed a deal, which sounds suspiciously like letters of mark and reprisal, by which he would receive a share of the pirate's plunder. Uh, and it goes on. Timoleon, the warlord of Syracuse, captured uh, a pirate fleet. Uh, the leader of it was called Postumius the Tyrrhenian. 
But Postumius is not an Etruscan name either. It would be an Italic name. And there's a long series uh, uh, of this kind of uh, behavior. Um, where it culminates is in the horrors of Delos. The uh, Italian merchants isolate themselves in mansions and have these beautiful Dionysiac mosaics, but they're slave dealers. Um, they're no Etruscans, but Latin-speaking Roman citizens to judge from the inscriptions they left. Um, uh, in fact, Ormerod, uh, writing on piracy, pointed to a cluster of pirate events in the literary sources around <coughs> 300 BC, just about the time the Italians slash Romans are moving into Delos. Well, finally, uh, I want to uh, question whether we have any physical evidence of piracy and the main uh, shipwrecks that we can see are Kyrenia, Cy Cyprus, uh, there's one near the Straits of Messina, one up to the north of Sardinia and one uh, off the uh, coast of Gaul. Uh, since we know hundreds of ancient vessels on the seabed, can we detect any forensic evidence of pirate attacks? In the harbor of Pisa uh, on the Arno River, many ships were recently found, you probably know of this, uh, under the alluvial silt around the train station. Uh, we see many, uh, much evidence of storm surges within the harbor area and uh, bad seas that caused wrecks there. Uh, but, uh, we don't see uh, any evidence there of piracy. What I did was uh, look through the uh, directory of ancient shipwrecks in the Mediterranean and sorted out what evidence is there of human tragedy? Are there any with bodies on the wrecks? What evidence is there of a violent destruction, fire or impact? And what evidence is there of an attempt to defend the ship? Um, there's a lot of evidence in these ancient shipwrecks, but it's very tricky to get the fine-tuning that we would want. Um, I made myself a little chart. Um, <clears throat> there's uh, of wrecks that had dead bodies trapped in them. Uh, the latest is 4th century AD at, near the airport of Rome, uh, Ostia Fiumicino. Uh, that looks like a homicide. A young man was lying dead in a scuttled boat that was sort of hidden. We'll cross that off. It's such a small boat. It's homicide. It's, it's not a pirate attack. In the Pisa Harbor in the early 2nd century BC, there's a Hellenistic wreck, badly, badly broken up, not as well preserved as the others. It holds some human bones, bones of a man, three horses, and part of the jaw of a lioness. Uh, some people have interpreted that as a poor animal being taken to the circus games. I think it may be a badly tanned rug, but either way, you know, <laughs> I, I feel badly for the lioness. That was just broken up in a storm, you can tell. On uh, Pisa ship B had this find. Uh, you can see a spar here lying over a skeleton, and here's the man, his face pointing this direction, his arm reaching out, and here's his dog. Uh, it looks as if he and the dog were hit from behind by a spar and impelled into the water and 
probably unconscious and then drowned and, and gone. And uh, the publication gives uh, a, a reconstruction of this, and you see him there with the dog. That's, I guess that's another one who's called Boy. Uh, there's one other uh, wreck with uh, a man's bones uh, trapped in it, and in fact, a dog's bones as well, although they're not in situ in that fashion. It's the Marsala Punic ship. Um, whether you uh, reconstruct it exactly that way as a warship or whether, as I suspect, it was a blockade runner disguised to maybe look like a warship, it's a sailing vessel, um, it had these bones on it, but we know it, the time period that it went down, whether it was the exact battle of the Agades or not, um, that's an act of war and it's not been emptied of its baskets of marijuana and its salt um, uh, beef and, and you know all those naval things. Um, it's another matter, uh, but I show it for uh, you know, what we may know. And there's one other wreck, uh, the Madia wreck with uh, the plunder of North Africa being taken back to Rome, statues and, and such. It had, a, uh, about 100 BC, the bone of fibula of a woman on board. So there must have been some woman, a slave or somebody, trapped down in the hold when the ship went down. Um, that ship had a catapult on it also. It, it was the Roman army uh, looting. In the Sardinian Sea, uh, we have one last piece of evidence. It's a, a site called Spargi. And the wreck was a wine freighter. Uh, there, there were the dishes still curled up on it and this. Uh, it's the skull of a man preserved because it was still inside a, a metal helmet. So he went down with the ship. Uh, it's the only case, the, these are the only cases in like modern wrecks where a person has something on that's too heavy and they can't get away. All the uh, mercenaries and, and uh, marines and all would know to get rid of that helmet the first thing you do and you know, head for the surface. Uh, but that man did not make it. Spargy was a merchant man and it suffered a violent impact. Uh, some people suggest that that was from a ship, others that it was from rocks uh, under the surface. In addition to the human remains, it held some arms, armor, uh, a helmet, a cuirass, a spear, and a knife. Okay, violent impact. Uh, the Masala ship, Marsala ship and the Spargy ship uh, both show uh, violent impact um, as, as if of, of a warship. Uh, defenders. Uh, the Spargy ship had still that defender remaining behind. Um, Vessels carrying significant numbers or suspicious contexts of arms. Uh, there are a few. The Giglio wreck had like a, the quiver's worth of arrows on it. It's not uh, too terribly much. Uh, but there's one other ship which uh, Spargy is very suspicious. And when pirates attack, they don't take all the amphorae of wine. They take a couple for themselves. They don't dare sell it. If they go to the nearest port, there's going to be a factor there saying, hey, wait a minute, I recognize a stamped amphora handle, and you're not Senator so-and-so. Um, you don't have a right to sell this. How did you get it? Um, 
So they leave all that behind. All they take are the humans to sell for slaves and the captain's stash and any small movable valuables. Um, Spargy still has that look and the Carinia ship does not have arms on it, uh, but it has other, whoops, there we go, other evidence. Uh, this was uh, uh, excavated by Michael and Susan Katsev and their team. You can see the ship as it was preserved and, and set up uh, in a, a museum in Carinia, northern coast of Cyprus. Um, it was an old ship. It was always held together and carefully balanced, but it was well cared for. That's a hint of what it looked like. That's a modern reconstruction, obviously. But on the ship, uh, in addition to the uh, cargo of iron ingots and um, stone uh, grinding stones uh, and amphorae full of food of different types, uh, and these are uh, dishes for four men and a captain to have their meals. Uh, it included, it, you won't really see them here, but sticking into the surface of the outside of the hull, piercing the lead sheathing, were a bunch of spears. Um, the spears were only found years after they began work on the wreck because they were uh, iron and they were covered in concretions and they had to fill the holes in the concretions with rubber uh, and then get an impression like a fossil to see what they were. Um, that looks pretty bad if you've got spears sticking in your hull. And in fact, they now reconstruct the spears as if pirates have this technique. You ram a spear in and jump up on it and make a ladder out of spears and jump over and you're in. There's one other thing that really tells them uh, this is a, a, a portion of it. Um, there was a lead curse tablet in a lead envelope rolled up and nailed to one of the major beams of the ship down in the hold. When they opened the curse tablet, there was nothing written on it. I would suggest it had been maybe written on in chalk or paint or something. Uh, they suggested the pirates were illiterate. And they couldn't write it, but they could make a curse tablet. But to nail something like that, it really does look like a pirate attack. Um, and that's our best evidence for any kind of pirate ships, piracy sinking a ship in the Mediterranean. Um, it's the uh, Carinia ship. Uh, well, to summarize that then, I'd have to say the society and economy of Etruria were not so conducive to the practice of piracy as a group, uh, even though Greeks grouped them as an ethnic lot that all did this. Uh, even though Etruscan coastal towns and sanctuaries were tempting to other groups like the kings of Syracuse. Etruria exported iron ore and natural resources and they're not desirable for pirates. The images from the Etruscan heyday the 7th century BC, those vases I showed you with a foresail and a, a special beak, show merchantmen defending themselves against pirates, and the pirate ships are of Greek design. The extant historical descriptions, those few that we have, show Etruscan lawful navies defending against pirate fleets. 
that would be the battle over Alalia. Even before that, early in the first millennium, the identity of Etruscans abroad shows them as big-ticket dedicators of goods in international sanctuaries, <laughs> the kinds of people who settle at Carthage uh, and are buried in a noble cemetery, uh, those who are uh, associates of a pan-Mediterranean trading uh, circuit. They participate in stable colonies and trading posts and show a distinct feminine component to the roster of business travelers and diplomats. A survey of the known wrecks that I've just uh, rushed you through shows almost no evidence of pirate raids. The few examples, Spargi and Kyrenia, cannot possibly be attributed to Etruscans. Kyrenia is um, at the beginning of the third century BC. It's all that trouble between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and uh, the takeover of the Hellenistic kingdoms. No doubt there were pirates operating in the Mediterranean. Uh, and especially in the dense shipping lanes of the Tyrrhenian and the Adriatic. And they were nicknamed Tyrrhenians or Tyrsinoi. But I suggest that this was a catch-all which actually covered many displaced or disenfranchised Italic bands or hybrid Greek Italic bands. So there were pirates in the Tyrrhenian Sea for sure, but those Tyrrhenians were, by all the extant evidence or lack thereof, not Etruscans. The affair of Alalia in the 6th century, when Etruscan cities could still launch navies, is one example of Etruria's need to curb marauders and maintain order in the central Mediterranean. So to the old trope of Etruscan pirates, I have to say what the Greek and Roman authors implied, well, it's easy and elegant diction to call it an innocent fiction, but it comes in the same category as telling a regular terrible story. Thank you.